the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this very special edition of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond here on Westwood One. Special because it is Kissmas. And I know how much joy that brings to Alan uh, when it is Kissmas time. Right, Alan? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And for folks uh, who might be checking this out for the first time, that is my co host, Alan Niven. And uh, we are going to talk all things Kiss because. Well, because that is the right thing to do. And I have two guests that have played with KISS, been with KISS, been in, in and around the KISS camp. The one, the only guitarist extraordinaire, Bruce Kulick, uh, on the first part of the show, talking about his experience on the, re, uh, on the recent KISS cruise. And on the second part, we have his brother, Bob Kulick, who, of course, played on KISS Alive 2. Uh, don't tell anybody, but he did. And also, he has a new album out called The Ultimate Kiss Tribute that includes uh, play people like uh, Asley Dunbar, Chris Jericho, Dee Snyder, Doug Aldrich, Fred Curry, etc., etc., etc. So, a lot of... Uh, and Carmen Apice, who we will have for you on an interview very soon. Um, Alan, I, I, listen, I, I'm making you wait because like a good Christmas... You should wait. Anticipation is, of course, the greatest part of Christmas. And uh, I will now unleash you. All things kissed. Go ahead. Regale me with your joy and love of the greatest band ever. Well, did you just mention that uh, Bob Kulik played with Ainsley Dunbar? Well, no. He, I, I don't, not necessarily with Ainsley, but... Uh, on this Kiss tribute album that Bob uh, oversaw, Ainsley uh, was part of it. Uh, Ainsley is one of the uh, all-time great rock and roll drummers. Um, never actually met him myself, but uh, I do remember in the past there were interesting stories that made him appear to be quite the rock and roller as well. But... Uh, Anybody's in who's who's into rock and roll drumming, check out Ainsley Dunbar and who he's played with and what he's played on. He, he's he's one of the real good drummers. He really is, and in fact, what most folks may not know is that Ainsley was part of the uh, White Snake 1987 album, uh, that big one that gave us "Still of the Night" and "Here I Go Again," yeah. the '87 version, and so on and so forth, and. Here is where my Kiss geekdom will amaze you as, to no end. Uh, in 1991-92, when uh, Kiss was looking for a new drummer at the um, unfortunate passing of Eric Carr, one of the drummers that they brought in to uh, audition was Ainsley Dunsbar. See? He was, he was considered for the Revenge album. Does that not just give you even greater respect for him? Well, I, from what I, little I know of Ainsley, I'd have thought that would have been interesting to think of him and Gene Simmons on a tour together because uh, I'm not sure that that wouldn't have been uh, ice and fire right there. But, um, you know, because Gene is uh, well known for um, not being a great party animal and... Uh, 
Ainsley definitely, I think, was a bit of a character. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And uh, just uh, just to move away from Ainsley here, I'll just finish with this. He has, of course, done stuff with David Bowie, Lou Reed, yep. Michael Schenker, yep. Niels Lofgren, yep. Mick Ronson, Journey, Sammy Hager, Whitesnake, uh, Ronnie Montrose, UFO, Jakey Lee. And I could go on at nauseum, but uh, let us uh, speak Bruce Kulick. Bruce, of course, was in KISS at the time that you were running around with Great White and uh, Guns N' Roses. Did you at any point meet, encounter, hear of, speak to, or anything with Sir Kulik? Well, there was a, uh, uh, a tour um, back in those dim, dark days when uh, uh, Great White opened for KISS, and he was a member of the band. And I can't remember exactly where it was, but I think it might have been Nashville, where for reasons that I can't remember, um, Kiss could not perform that night. And uh, Gene actually graciously said, go ahead, Great White can uh, do the show and be the headliner for the night and we'll get somebody else to open up for them. And, um, you know, so that particular night... uh, Great White had the uh, pleasure of using the uh, Kiss production and doing a, a couple of hours of music. Did they really? So, you know, yeah. I, as a uh, Kiss geek, I've I've never heard that story. Do we, do we know why they couldn't perform? Was it injury? Was it they couldn't get to the airport? Was it something simple? Or was it more convoluted? Was it? Do oh, we recall? I was, far too, I was far too discreet to ask. Oh well. And and how did that show go for for the boys for for the great white boys? Uh, it went extremely well, and of course they topped it off with, um, dare I say, a superior rendition of "Party All Night," oh. and that's how they closed the show for the Kiss fans who were there. Rock and roll and rock and roll all night and party every day. So I'll just give you this real quick. Yep. Uh, in December of 1989, December 11th. To be specific, Great White opened for Alice Cooper on his trash tour in Wembley, and that was later released in Japan as the Great White Live in London recording. Was that something that you were involved with? As, uh, involved with? <laughs> involved with as well? Uh, yes, it was a very interesting evening because uh, basically the BBC turned up to record Alice at Wembley and in those days if the BBC turned up to record Alice or anybody uh, they reserved the rights to the record and it could only be released on the BBC label uh, and it was used for broadcast as well and the BBC turned up and uh, got their equipment set and were all ready to go and Alice's camp decided for um, various reasons that they didn't want to go through with it. So the BBC came along and said, well, we're all set up. (laughs) We'll record you guys if you like. And we had a brief meeting in the soundtrack, and I said, absolutely, uh, we'd love to have you record us, um, but there's a stipulation. Um, If you record us, we want the right to be able to release the material elsewhere. You can release it in the UK, and of course you can broadcast the hell out of it, 
but we do not want to be restricted in releasing it in other territories. Um, and the BBC got a little grumpy about it. Um, and then they came back and they said, you know what, we're all set up, let's just do it. And we agree. So that gave us the opportunity to use those recordings in Japan. And I have to tell you, the BBC did a fantastic job. And if you're into the band, um, I recommend that you try and find that that disc because it is incredibly well recorded and it's a good recording because the band did not have a clue what was going on. There was no red light fever. There was nobody going on, on stage at Wembley and going, uh-oh, we've got to be really good tonight because we're being recorded. They just went out there and played a show. Um, and it's a very accurate record of that band at that moment. It's, it's, it's a pretty good little disc. Oh, it's a great record. I, I remember having bought it in, bought it in, I, I don't know where my English is today. I remember having bought it on uh, import, and I still have it downstairs in my uh, CD rack. It, it is a great, great, but it did answer the question to me as to why it was never released in North America, because it, it only came out in Japan, and it's been a hard, hard one to find. And I know if you if you track down some of the services like Discogs.com and, and MusicStack.com, some of those more specialized, you can still get it. And it, it does sound great. It re, That and the um, Great White Stages well, are, are fantastic. The, 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 the stage is the band at its very best. Yes. Um, but the, the reason why Live in London was only released in Japan was that uh, back in the day when we were touring in foreign territories um, I would like to see if there would be something that we could put out um, to get a little attention and tickle the audience uh, around a tour and there were things and I kind of liked the idea that we'd put something out in Japan and it would only be for Japan or we'd put something out in the United Kingdom and it would only be for the United Kingdom or we'd put something out in Australia and it would just be for Australia that it was particular for that particular audience so there are some things floating around that uh, didn't get the usual release and push uh, and were there just for fun and and anyway it, it is spectacular and it is now a week closer to being 30 years old that that show and recording was done. December 11th, 1989. So, God. <laughs> it, it goes way, way, way. 30 years. Well, almost. 29. Yeah. 20. But, sorry, I, I'm old at this point. I have to ho hold on to every possible year. So, 29, not 30. Uh, but yeah, there you go. Uh, but let's get over to, to Bruce Kulik. We have spoken long enough here up front. Bruce Kulik and I, of course, discuss, like I said, the Kiss Cruise, Ace Fraley being on the cruise, a little reunion that took place on the cruise, that sort of unplugged uh, thing that took place with, with Tommy and Eric and Gene and Paul and the whole thing. A lot of discussion, a lot of fun. Uh, and here he is. Without further ado, le seul et unique, the one, the only, Bruce Kulik. We are speaking with guitarist Bruce Kulik. He, of course, um, recently played the Kiss Cruise, and it was a fantastic, fantastic experience. Bruce, always, always a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, just welcome. Hey, thanks for having me again, Mitch. That's wonderful. Yes. Yes, we, we have done, what would you think, probably like, 
12 interviews over the years or, or 20 <laughs> interviews over the years. We've, we've covered sort of everything. Probably. Yeah, sure. we have. So let's, but I do want to focus on, on the present day and, and moving forward. So this Kiss Cruise that you did recently that also had Todd Kearns and, and Zach and Brent Fitz, um, talk to me about going into that. What were some of your expectations and, you know, you, you've mentioned in, in other places that you, you had to take your entire sort of career with the band and squeeze it down. So how, how do you decide what songs to play? And, and let's start with that. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and just to set the stage for everybody, you got to keep in mind that this is Kiss Cruise 8. So their eighth cruise that they have successfully sold out and very unusually on the guests the guests of the boat are Ace Fraley, okay, who has never been invited or, or officially done one. I think he might have been asked the year before, but his schedule didn't permit it. Uh, and then, of course, me. Okay, so how do I look at my song list? Obviously, if you go with that literal title of Decades of Kiss, I certainly represent uh, the non-makeup era, you know, from 84 to 96 of my years. And... Uh, and I really, uh, you know, I'm a little tied to Animalize too, even though I didn't really, that wasn't the first album that I'm playing all the lead guitar on. I did a little bit of ghost work, but I did the entire tour all the way through to uh, Revenge and Live 3, and then, of course, Unplugged. And then there was the Carnival Souls record, which was in the cone, I mean, the can rather, and then, of course, didn't uh, come out until after Reunion tour took a break, right? So all those years are a lot of years when I, wanted to look at how much could I do. I think you know some of the guys in my band, correct? I do. Todd and Brent. Yes, yeah. and in fact... And you know... Yeah, besides oh, being gonna... talented, two of them are Canadian, too. <laughs> okay. Well, which, which is what and, makes uh, them talented. Yeah. But no, yeah, I... Yes, I, yes, yes. Brent, Brent was a guest on, on, on the show a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I had Brent mm-hmm. on, and always a great pleasure to, to talk to him. But yeah, mm-hmm. so... You know, and Brent, of course, was in union with you. What was that? Yes. Was there any consideration to doing any union song, by the way, while you were on the cruise? No, no. And and, and even though I know there were some fans here that would have welcomed that, uh, getting back to well, what am I going to serve as the menu on the boat? You know what I mean? It's going to be heavily my 12 years in the band. And my first um, step was obviously making uh, a playlist of all the songs I contributed to during my KISS years, um, which is easy to do in something like a Spotify, okay? So that there it all is in one giant playlist, right? So now I'm looking and realizing how many songs that I've uh, been involved with. And then, of course, um, I'm talking about looking at potentially every song off of Asylum, every song off of Crazy Nights, every song off of Carnival Salt not thinking, you know, like, well, what would I choose? But I, there were certain ones I gravitated to right away. A few that we played or only played a little bit. Something like All, All Night, which was a great video and a, and a great track on a song. I don't think we played it very often, but the band did play it while I toured with the band. Um, others like X and Sex and Make Me Rock Hard, which came from the Smashers Thrashes and Hits album, I, I kind of tie those to the hot and the shade era of the band, but I, I, we never played them live. Okay, maybe we fooled around with one at a KISS convention, and it went over very well, by the way. So the only way that I can accomplish the 
Kiss uh, crews, uh, the people who put it together are very specific about they request 75 minute sets because the boat has to be on a schedule. I think everybody can understand that. Okay. Because there's so many acts and so much going on. So how do I cram? And my offer was two contracts, I mean, concerts in the contract. So and they do encourage you to do different sets if you can, because they realize that the same people may attend both concerts. So that gave me a little leeway, of course, with the songs. But it was very ironic how my band, those three guys, were just hitting me with too many songs. So that the original master list was like probably 40 songs which is impossible to be able to put into two 75 minute sets. So I'm a big fan of the Rat Pack. I'm a big fan of the fact that I used to see those greats do medleys of songs. Sometimes they could stick like 30 songs into, you know, like six minutes, you know, just a a chorus or, or, you know, something memorable from a a hit into another hit into another hit. I wasn't going to quite do that, but I, I have to admit that, the concept, and I did it before years ago in Australia with a band that I've used down there, was to, let's say we sit, we look at Crazy Nights and we want to put together five songs that aren't that common. Uh, let's, let's see what we can come up with. So let's say start with, uh, in this case it was, let's start with, uh, you know, come hell or high water. Okay. Right. And then, all right. And then let's make a left turn and go into another one. And in this case it was, uh, I think it was like, um, I'll fight hell uh, to hold you. Sure. Yeah, fight hell to hold you into when your walls come down and no, help no, me no. out. What was the next one? No, 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 yeah, no, no, no. Right. And then we ended with a big version of a song never released before. Was that what was next on that one? Yep. Sword and Stone. Yep. And Sword and Stone, of which Brent and Todd especially pushed me to say, we have to do the whole version of the demo or pretty much the whole version. I'm like, what? this song's never even been released. What are you talking about? And of course they looked at me like, no, they're going to go nuts. They're going to lose it. They all know it. And I'm like, all right, whatever. So, um, it is a kind of a dramatic song and I always felt short change that Ron Nevison didn't choose it to be on the record. So I figured, yeah, why not? You know? So there you go. There you have like, um, a, you know, like enough of a taste of the songs. Uh, and, and, and I remember we had to time these things during rehearsal. So let's say uh, I probably had it on my iPhone as like a 10 and a half minute file. All right. So there's those songs. Okay. Then we looked at an, an asylum medley uh, and, a, and a, no, I'm sorry, a carnival souls medley. And then we looked at a uh, hot, I called it a hot in the shade, even though it went off into smash your stretches medley. So by doing these medleys, I was able to offer a taste, enough of a taste uh, of these songs that, um, would be impossible to do full versions of each one and stay committed to a 75 minute set. Okay. Yeah. And I, I, they changed as we rehearsed them because we realized sometimes when we were putting a few together, that's not enough of that song. We got to add another verse of it. You know what I mean? Something to make it really sink in or make it feel dramatic. But I'll tell you the bigger challenge, not so much of the arrangements of those, those three medleys that I decided to have everyone learn is, is the fact that, they become one giant song that you have to learn. Do you understand what I mean? Like every song oh, yeah. has its own kind of like, you know, roadmap that, you know, uh, but when you now string together four or five songs, now the that entire thing is, is its own beast. And, and, you know, it was pretty easy for us to, 
get lost that way. But I, I, I'm very, very proud of uh, that we pulled it off. Carnival Souls, we only did the, the second night, and that one was real special. Uh, the fans went crazy hearing some of those songs. Uh, even though we did a full version of Jungle on one of the nights, I don't remember which one. So uh, I, I just was really proud of that, you know, the fact that I was able to figure out a way to do Nobody complained. Why didn't you do more? No, no, no. And nobody said, you know, what happened to the Empire? I'll fight hell to hold you. In fact, the only, uh, in a similar way, people did say, why don't you do this one? Or can't you do this one? You know, they mentioned other songs that were their favorites from my era. So I got the right reaction from everybody. And obviously I was, I certainly put some stuff on the menu that hasn't been, uh, uh, you know, looked at. That it was was a challenge, but I I just had a feeling that they would really weed it up, and they did. You know, the fans loved it. The reaction's been amazing. I I don't even want to read too much of it because I don't want to get all like you know I'm I'm pretty humble as a guitarist, and it feels great to know that people enjoyed the performances. But I you know you don't want to believe your own hype. You know, I mean, I'm a perfectionist, and I'm always working hard at doing the best I can. My wife was like crying when I got off the stage the second night. She was so proud of me. And I was like, yeah, but I didn't hit that note right in, you know, and I mentioned the song, you know, and she's looking at me like, you're crazy. Todd was the same way, apparently, I heard. And he's such a tremendous singer. And of course, not only the fans, you know, uh, kind of like sharing their enthusiasm for what we did. I even heard it from the band, you know, Eric's a dear friend of mine, of course. So, you know, he was there rooting us on all the time, but Paul actually made the effort to reach out to me and let everybody in my band know they did a terrific job and that he really uh, enjoyed it. So that meant a lot to me, of course, you know, and the guys were very appreciative. So it was a big win and, and I've never celebrated my career quite that way. Usually when I did my, my own gigs around the world, I generally stay closer to an alive three kind of menu and, you know, Alive 3 isn't all really songs from only my generation. I mean, my era, rather, of the band is what I mean. Uh, but I have to admit that my uh, Alive 3, you know, I didn't mind if I did a Love Gun from Alive 3 because I I wanted, if I'm going to play it, I would play it more the way, it, I, you know, we played it, you know, meaning Eric Singer and myself with Gene and Paul in 92, that era of the band which is different than the way the uh, original band or the makeup version plays it. But I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do anything really that Kiss has been delving into. So that's why we learned specifically a lot of those songs. And, um, and, I, and I know the fans appreciated hearing it because it, they do mean a lot to a lot of the fans, even though Kiss is a much bigger picture than just my 12 years of, of work. And I know that, but I just, I, why wouldn't I? concentrate on me and to answer your question about union what i i'd love to do some union material at some point but not at the at the expense of one of those kiss songs that everybody out there knows i want that reaction you know so yeah and i, I was I, selfish about that you know that i wanted to make them happy. i wasn't selfish and i didn't try to say here's one from my bk3 album or and even if it's the one that gene wrote i don't want to do it you know what i'm saying i wanted to do the kiss song it was rightly chosen. So, so many questions. First of all, uh, Sword and Stone, which was left off of, I guess it was left off of Crazy Nights. Paul Dean of Loverboy mm-hmm. covered it later. Um, yes, of course, the fans know it and love it. We, we've all heard the demo on, on YouTube a million times. After 
that era came out and after that album came out, there was the Kiss box set. Why do you think that song sort of keeps getting pushed aside? Because I saw the reaction on the boat. We know the fans have discussed it as nauseam in all kinds of different news groups and stuff. What What is it about that song that just it, it just sort of always falls right under the cut? I don't know. I mean, I, I you, you know, I'm like... It's a great song. I have a good relationship. With, yeah, I had a great... You know, I've, I've been very archival about the Kiss stuff, anything that I have. I remember when Tommy was involved, you know, they asked Tommy Thayer to help compile stuff for the box set and everything. And I remember him coming over um, to my home then. And I had digital versions of quite a few unique things uh, that that uh, I said, here's what I have, you know, and one of the one of the things I know I discussed with him was that song, the unreleased track to revenge. Do you want to touch me now? Which doesn't have a vocal on it, but easily could be sung if, if it wanted to be finished. There's another one that some people mentioned online. Why didn't, you know, what about time traveler, which is another demo from that era with Eric Carr and myself and all. I, I don't know. I, I don't, it's gotta be up to them and who knows what the future is and, and, and if it's something that they could consider doing something with, but I still feel that it, it right now, the music, since it's on YouTube and the demos out there, it belongs to the people. So why not perform it live? It is something I wrote. Ironically, that whole crazy nights medley that we chose, I was a co-writer to some degree on each one of those songs. That wasn't so much by design, but it turned out that those were songs that I co-wrote, which was a good feeling. Of course. Oh, it's a great feeling and great performances of everything. And and hopefully we'll get to see it. I know you don't uh, speak for KISS or represent KISS in any way, but, but do you see a time down the future where there might be a box set too? Is that something that you would like to see? Or, or is that something that is, is feasible, uh, uh, You know, whether it's five years down the road? Or no, they did one and we've crossed that bridge and we'll just, you know, what, what yeah. do you think? Well, you know, I... I I would think if it was possible, meaning, well, who owns the masters? How would they make a deal with it? You, you know, you guys got to all understand that. I, I know that the, the, you know, the band's not with that label or I right. don't think they are, but they, they could always revisit things with universal and which was polygram, which was mercury, which, you know, I don't even know how many labels right. I think we were on Island Def Jam at one point. I don't know. You know, it, I, and I was never really a party to the contracts of being tied to the label. I was tied to Gene and Paul and, and as, as a working for them. So I think you got to understand that, that in the bigger picture, no matter what they have, you got to look at the business ends of things. Well, who owns what and what is considered controlled by KISS and what is potentially part of catalog that is universal or something like that. So I, I really think that, that when a lot of fans want to see something, they don't realize there's also usually a business connection that, that is unclear. It's unclear to me. So I got, I, now you realize how, um, how far you are from seeing it. I'm not even sure. Right. This isn't and, like, just because I gave it to Tommy, it means that Tommy could put it out, even if Paul and Gene said, Sword and Stone demo should be on the box. I don't know. I don't even know who owns it, really. You know, I don't know. And, and But and, I never act like I own it. You, you know, that I know, okay? Because, you know, you get what I'm saying. Yeah, and, and I think I, that's... I mean, I was a writer on it, so that's good. And I think that's what, what uh, some fans... Uh, 
needs to be clarified, they think, well, it got all this stuff in the vault. You should just put it out. And it's like, well, just because it's there doesn't mean they own it. it. You know, sometimes it's a work for hire. Sometimes it's, you know, right. Uh, and and right. people don't seem to get and, that. And just to give you an example, right, of something recent that happened, like Gene and the vault, which he made a deal with Rhino Records, uh, he was very, very methodical to a, you know, intense degree as Gene does everything to intense degree. And he reached out to anyone that was involved. Okay. With any of those songs. And he was very clear to meet with all of them and to make an agreement with all of them because he was going to officially sell it. Okay. So that's what I mean. You know, now Gene's was in control. He was the only one, you know what I mean? And there was, every song was, in some way connected to him now, now when you're talking about a kiss song that i write with paul and desmond child and it's done a demo back in electric lady land years ago not uh, not accepted by nevison never officially recorded on the record i don't know i don't know where it goes i don't know who, who how what if they wanted to put it out i don't know yeah and and you know it it, it speaks to to Gene's sense of detail, but it's also sort of sad that if just because he's Gene Simmons, if he puts it out and he doesn't do this, somebody will end up suing him. And it's sort of a sad state that yeah, somebody's absolutely. always looking yeah. to sue. And it's yeah. it's like, you know, anyway. Yeah. Um, but let's get back Gene, to the Gene was clear about that in the beginning because, you know, it wasn't about money. This was about I don't I can't be sued. I don't I don't want to be sued. I got to, you know, and I know that especially guys like that are a target, as you know. Because the richer you are, the bigger target you could yes. potentially be. So, yeah. No, he did the right thing. And it's the yes. right thing to have the business part of it to be queer. That's all. Yep. It just is anyway. It, it is. Absolutely. Uh, but let's get back on the positive. Looking at these at these set lists and all these songs, and you brought, brought out the Carnival of Souls stuff, which Kiss themselves never played live. Um, if, if you look at those albums, from Asylum down to, 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 to Carnival, which one sort of stands out to you as being, you know, the one that was the best moment for you in terms of feeling part of the band or, or, or songwriting wise, or, you know, which one do you go? Yeah, that's where me, not, not kiss, not Paul, not Gene, where me, Bruce Kulik, that's the one where, yeah, I, I really hit a high point in my career on this album for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Well, look, that's a great question. But you got to remember, I, I can easily admit to you that I, you know, I have highlights on all of them and I, I have my personal triumphs, I feel, throughout the records I did with them. Cause, but I was also evolving as an artist. I could easily just say, well, if you want to look at quantity, yeah, Carnival Souls, I was in this obsessed mode. My life was going through some changes that I had. A lot of problems in my, you know, that marriage. And I was just knee deep in like, okay, I'm just going to write songs. And by the way, the wrists were darker, heavier and uglier than, than, than revenge. Right. So I just concentrated on writing riffs. So I wound up contributing, I think almost nine co-writes on that record. Okay. But it doesn't mean that I feel like Carnival Souls is, is the ultimate record for me. I, I could generally say that revenge working with Bob Ezrin uh, my lead playing was, was very, very important to Bob. He pushed me, they pushed me, they treated me like it, you know, like, uh, you know, you gotta bring these songs up to the next level. The press, they put that pressure on me. Okay. But I, I think I came up with the goods. Okay. But then you go to crazy nights, Nevison liked my playing, you know, why would we feature a song like, no, 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 with me just playing by myself in the beginning, et cetera, et cetera. 
um, asylum, tears are falling. You know, I mean, that's a, that's such a, to me, an iconic solo who wants to be lonely. Another great solo that I'm proud of. And, and I shouldn't gloss over hot in the shade. You know, I had, you know, hide your heart had a lot of memorable riffs in it, but, but forever, you know, I, I, I'm, I could safely go to heaven saying like, I played a beautiful acoustic guitar solo on a kiss song that people love. They get married to it or they stick their, you know, deceased husband in one, <laughs> you know, in the casket that says forever. Remember when he was selling those, right? So there's so many highlights, you know, and you think about my career with Kiss, you got solos on Unholy to all the way to something like uh, Forever. You know, there's a, there's a big range there. Some people unplug is their favorite thing. And then I'm playing various years of Kiss, including a domino acoustic or, uh, or you know, you know s- some unusual Kiss song, uh, like uh, what was the hero song that... Uh, uh, Gene sang from his solo record, oh. you know, so World Without Heroes. So you get what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, from the Elder. There's so many proud moments for me. Yeah, from the Elder, which is unusual. Uh, yeah, not his solo record, right? Right. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I know I usually gravitate towards revenge only because I thought that the band was like lean, mean, and hungry, but I can't ignore Silent Crazy Nights or even Hot in the Shade, you know, so that's why I, I, you know, when you say that to me, I feel like I have all these key points of my career that are highlights to me that I, I will always want to refer to or hit on when I perform live too. Yeah. So let let me quickly look back at at these set lists on the kids cruise when you're compiling it and getting into rehearsals and you're getting this stuff together. Are there songs that you look at that for whatever reason, you just feel I can't play that now. Either you can't bend your fingers that way, or what it was comped in the studio and it's just so complex. Were there songs that you say these are not doable? We I, anything like that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes, too much of that. I was tortured about this set and delving deep into some of the songs, uh, like one in particular, which Brent was like, "We got to do King of the Mountain." we got to open the set with King of the Mountain. I'm like, Oh my God. He just, he just put a, you know, freaking, you know, 200 pound dumbbell around me. You know what I mean? Just threw it at me because, um, that solo was like, you know, a struggle back 30, 30 plus years ago. Okay. And now I'm like trying to play the solo and the, and the riffs and the tempos we used to do back then were brutal. Uh, I had some tips and some, uh, tricks to help me. I went back to some rehearsal tapes that I archived and I had, you know, digitized. Uh, it's amazing when I could just bring it up in my, uh, you know, iTunes, you know, cause I did, you know, made it digital, you know, uh, rehearsing with just Gene and Eric. And then sometimes Paul was there too. It was interesting to hear. And of course, then I listened to, all right, well, how did I do the solo in the rehearsal room? What did I do? And obviously I couldn't play it exactly like the recording because that was one of those comp solos. So, it, it, that took a little pressure off. And then one day I finally just said, all right, some stuff is just really not my style, not comfortable for me and really hard. And I'm going to hurt myself and that would be bad. So I said to my wife, I remember, I figured it out. I'm just going to, I'm going to learn what I can do, play it the best I can at my current 2018 ability. And I know that's way better than a lot of people do, but I'm just going to, you know, I kind of give enough of a flavor of everything and then play what's comfortable for me because I can't kill myself over this. I can't go into a time capsule and say it's 1986 anymore, you know, or 85. 
So um, I was able to do it really well. When I look back and I, even the hardest solos, when I looked at what I was able to do live with them, I was, I was proud, even though I know what I would like to be able to do or what I could think I could do, but I have to be realistic that I, I don't always play in those styles. Uh, and it, it would be hard. It would be hard to do that, you know, um, yeah. unless I, I was back in some time machine, you know, you know, musicians are always asked. I'm, I'm so impressed with all the artists that, are, that carry on from Jagger to McCartney and all that into their seventies and everything and performing great. But the truth is, you know, there are going to be some limitations, you know, because of, as you get older, it's not going to be as easy to play quite as fast or swiftly or, and, and everyone has to, you know, understand that. Has, has being a member of, of Grand Funk changed your style in, in the sense that you're, you're playing those riffs from, from, a, from a 70s band? Has it changed your ability, you know, the muscle memory and stuff, just playing that different sort of groove or not at all? You can switch in and out as needed. Well, the, the, the one thing, and, and that's a fair thing to like present to me, but, but just remember, I'm playing some high-energy lead guitar work with Grand Funk. Yeah, of course. The one element that's a bigger challenge, though, that's different from that era, and you should remember, too, by Alive 3, we were not playing animalized-type material, right? Right. And what I mean by that is technically, guitaristically-wise, there wasn't a lot of dive-bomb, whammy-bar stuff all the time. There wasn't a lot of hammer-on and 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 all of the finger style things that were more part of 1985 86 or 84 even animalized asylum era playing so i didn't always play that way uh just watching the tape you know i put out a hot licks video teaching some of the asylum stuff i was like i sat down and i started studying what i was doing and i was just like wow ooh, that hurt <laughs> you know because yeah that's the muscle part that I don't do that that much, but even by the end of, you know, the later years of kiss and the end of my era in kiss, I didn't necessarily play that way, you know? So I can't just look at my 18 years with grand funk and say like, is that why you don't finger tap? I wasn't even finger tapping in 95 much. Okay. So, but, but whether or not, if I kept doing it through all those years that it would be easier, I don't really know the answer, but, um, it is, it is, uh, an interesting technique that, is is uh where where it's appropriate to be used it should be used but you know i'm glad i'm not defined by it if you get what i mean then maybe i wouldn't be the right guy for a lot of the work i do if i was just mr uh uh, you know uh, hammer on uh flashy guy you know i mean i like that i'm versatile and i play i play lead guitar the right the right thing for the right job yeah, play. You play with a song. Now we we are about twenty five right. minutes in, so we're gonna we're gonna run out of time soon. So let me ask you some of these questions. You had a chance on, of course, on the Kiss Cruise, to do the, a few songs with Paul and Tommy and Ace and Eric and Gene and and sort of you know unplugged part two, if you want. What was that experience like to to sort of give the fans and yourself a taste of the whole Kiss every era on stage at once? Uh, you know, unplugged. Yeah, it was super exciting. And I remember uh, a few times turning to to my wife, Lisa, and just saying, I can't believe this is going to happen when, you know, when I was watching them, you know, after like, I don't know, 22 years or so, 
that this was gonna, there I am, I'm gonna be on stage again with them performing in front of the fans. And uh, I only knew about it a few hours before the sail away was to begin. And I, I'm glad I had an opportunity to go over a couple of things with Tommy, which he requested because uh, so sure how well he knew Domino, but he was going to be there. It wasn't like, all right, now you leave the stage. You know, we were all going to be there. And then there was, of course, the surprise of, and then we want you to stay up there when Ace comes out. So that means I'm going over with Tommy, uh, New York Groove, uh, 2000 man, you, you know, I didn't play that yeah. with them on Unplugged, yep. you know, when, when the original four played. So we got a chance to go over things. Ace had the easier job because he knows his two songs, of course. And then, you know, I don't know how often he's played Nothing to Lose, which was kind of like a last minute add-in. But I, I used to play with Eric Singer a lot in ESP. So I was able to do that one. And of course, Rock and Roll Night. So it, it was amazing. I mean, uh, the oddest thing that nobody would know, because it's just what, what I'm experiencing is when I got up there and Tommy, you know, um, gracefully handed me his better of the two Chet Atkin guitars that he owned, um, was just what it sounded like on stage. I was very surprised how loud the drums were. You know, I love Eric, but it was just like, oh my God, that kick drum is like killing me right in my, my head. I said to Tommy, how do you deal with that? He goes like, oh, I don't know. Was it loud? You, you know, because I mean, everyone's perception is different, right? When, when you have your monitors. And again, that has nothing to do with what you guys are going to hear in the crowd and what the YouTube camera is going to pick up, if you get what I mean. Right, 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 you right. Know what the audio will sound like. So I was really relieved when I heard some of the video uh, when I, you know, came off the boat and got to actually hear what things sounded like because up there it was it was a bit of a struggle for me in that way. But I also I felt great about it. It it, it was outside of some of the things not being in my comfort zone, meaning. You know, I'm sitting in on someone else's guitar on, with their pedals and everything. It wasn't quite the comfort of Unplugged, which I had plenty of time for me to use gear that is mine. I know it was a big win-win for everybody. Ace, I thought, did a great job. Um, the, the the relaxed state of everyone on stage and the, having the fans love us, it, it was an amazing moment. It really was quite surreal. But, you know, I had to come off of that high and then regroup and i know that's when ace set up to play and then i had to go out there and do a full set so that was a long day okay my uh my kickoff day on the on kiss crusade was quite quite a quite a you know huge event in my life i have to admit and in history and um, i'm glad that people are talking about it made a lot of fans happy so so yep. a lot of questions uh, just 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 real quick do you see yourself or do you do you want at some point in the future to to get on stage with the guys again do, do you think that's something we'll see again whether it's on the tour or on a cruise again is, is where does the future lie for you in doing stuff with tommy and eric and and everybody else right well i hope there's some way that um you know, I get included and we can do something. Uh, obviously, the fans love, you know, the conjecture over all that. Uh, you know, the discussions are wild, as you can imagine. You know, I think there's still people that think maybe Ace will be back in the band already. You know, you know how it goes. It's just never ending with the fans. Um, you know, I, I don't know how or, you know, what could happen. But uh, the, the thing I will say is... Uh, I'm certainly willing to, you know, if they asked, uh, you know, you know, be a part of something in front of the fans again. I just don't know when and how it would happen. I just don't know. 
Um, but I, I know the fans always welcome that. I think they always want to see it as one big family instead of just the, this band or that band or that band, you know, as you yeah. can imagine. But just this whole concept of selling and marketing the end of the road tour, which is, you know, I, I know they're serious about it being, you know, like winding it down. Okay. But, you know, it just gets the fans all crazy and right away every every rumor and every, you know, you know, kind of a, a theory of what should be done. I had a one fan, you know, swear to me, you know, let Ace do his outfit and come out on stage and they should come up with makeup for you. And then you can come out and join them on stage. And I'm like, I don't think that's going to happen, but okay, I get it. So I, I, I do love the enthusiasm that how everyone's got a, a take on it and what, what would be the ultimate, um, I guess, version of Whatever everybody happens. getting the, yeah, getting their kumbaya moment for the fans that, that more than the four guys that currently in the band could be on the stage. But, but you know, if you ask me, I don't, I don't know how it could be done or, or how it should be done. I, I don't even have a, a you know, a clue. a clue, but I, I think they'll figure it out however they want to do it, you know? And I'll say this and for, from the, for the fans or from the fan perspective, it, all those rumors and all that talk, you know, it, it sort of helps. Maybe that's not the right word, but it sort of helps the band because you don't hear fans talk at nauseum about the Rolling Stones or about Aerosmith. There's this great passion and this constant conversation is sort of what keeps the band at the forefront. Because if we didn't talk yeah, like that, you know, it's, know, it's it's sort of a damned if you do, if damned if you care. don't. Right. Exactly. Right. So if, if they well, didn't well, care, you'd have a problem. Thing. Yeah. There's times I'll read something that's really negative. And I, I go like, all right, this guy is being very negative about certain things about Kiss, but why is he even bothering to type it and put it up there if he didn't care about the band? You know, and it goes back to the old saying that, you know, bad press is good press because, you know, you get the bad press, they're still talking about you, right? You know, right. I mean, there's no doubt that the uh, Kiss world and the fans, the relationship's very unique. It's very special. It's huge. How many bands that are known to be as big or bigger even than Kiss, like, uh, like I, and I'm not yet trying to, you know, throw that out there. Right. Uh, is Led Zeppelin bigger than Kiss or the Beatles bigger than Kiss? Whatever. But the point I'm making, are they Led Zeppelin conventions? Uh, no, right? of course not. Of course not. There, and... there are Beatle conventions. We know that. And there's a Beatle show on uh, in Las Vegas and et cetera. But, but you, you get where I'm going with this. It is fascinating, the KISS world and, and the KISS fans. And uh, and you're right that no matter um, what, the, no matter how you want to look at it in a bigger picture, um, that that discussion shows how huge they are, how much they mean to so many people. Listen, there, there are some people that say stupid things just to say stupid things, but there are others yeah. where they say it and it, it, it comes from a place of passion and they want mm -hmm. that very finite version of Kiss, which is either Ace or just the Bruce era or just the Bruce and mm -hmm. Eric Singer. And so whenever it's not that, they complain about it. But there's a passion about, no, I want that, you know, and you see, well, you can't have that. It's not there anymore. But, the, the, you know, yeah. that's that's anyway, that's that's where it comes from. Um, well, it's, it's partially why I stay away from, you know, reading the Kiss boards, because I don't want I don't want to get my, you know, like like emotions you know, riled up about it, you know, but I, I think, I think let's just take the positive spin of all this that you're bringing up, which is the fact that enough people care about this band that even if they don't get what they want, they're talking about it. Yes. I, you're a hundred percent right. And yeah. that's, 
and that that isn't a test you know you know is is a test of the importance of the band and that's big and i'm just happy to be a part of a band that's that you know yeah. controversial infamous famous successful whatever you want to call it a brand it's it's remarkable it's you know, it's I all mean, of the above you know, i run into people yeah yeah and that's what's remarkable people though and i'll go i put i played with kiss for 12 years and they only know makeup kids so they go like oh so so what did you do i said well i was in the band when they didn't wear makeup oh so you were like uh, you were on the side of the stage or something you you, you, know, you were you were at rehearsal <laughs> yeah and i'm like no 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 i was the lead guitarist i take out my phone i show them pictures with gene and paul and i go like oh my god now that's a person that they might recognize Gene and Paul because everybody knows what they who they are, even if you don't care about Kiss or like it. But then they realize, oh, the band was around. They didn't wear makeup, and look, this is the guy I'm talking to playing guitar with them. Oh my god, you know. And then of course I get the guys that are just, uh, you know, they'll tap me on the shoulder. I saw you in 1988 in Cleveland. Oh my god, how are you? <laughs> you know, right. You know. I, yeah, listen, so I, I get it all. You know. A lot of that dysfunction is born of of passion, just a pure, pure passion for for the music, mm-hmm. the band, the characters, the members, the the whole thing. And and listen, we're we're getting up to forty minutes, so I'll, I'll ask you this: It is the end of the road. How does that make you feel? Because you sort of you were a part of the band. You do have this history, you know, Asylum and Crazy Nights and all the albums and and the conventions and. Is it a little bit of a part of you that that's that's going away? Even though you aren't in the band, it's it's still always been there. It's always been an entity and a going concern. The fact that it won't be there uh, as a as a going concern, it'll be sort of, you know, are you losing a part of yourself? Is it is it is it time? Like, is it a sad moment? Is it a happy moment? How do you sort of see it? You know, for me, things don't change as much because I I've always felt like I've been kind of celebrating i don't want to retire if you know what i mean if they, if they literally don't perform together as a band after these two three years whatever however they run it um well i hope to still be performing and why wouldn't i perform if i get the right opportunity you know my kiss music so i think it affects me less i do love all the attention that the band's getting because of it because it deserves the attention you know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was a little bit bittersweet for me, of course. I, I loved that the band was honored. And then, of course, <laughs> I was part of the swirling controversy of all the band members or not. And as we all know, we don't have to revisit that. You know how it went. But I, I tried to look at the positive end of it. So I look at it in a positive end side of it. I don't look at me losing anything because it's not to be taken away from me. I haven't performed with them since 95, technically, you know, right. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, um, I think, what was I, the Eric last Singer thing you did? Say, well, well, was unplugged the last the thing last you did thing with I them? Did was probably was it on... the, the Christmas live, uh, like a Christmas Mark and Brian show in December of 95. Okay. And okay. we were still mixing carnival souls in 96. They told us early in 96, Eric and I, that they were going to do the makeup tour. And then by March they were in makeup on the uh, Nimitz or whatever that you know the yeah right about the the, the, or they uh, did a show whatever you know they and and then you know the rest so it's yeah. been such a long time for me uh, not that much changes for me but I do love the fact that that they that there's so much attention on the band and and everything and then nothing could be more exciting than a Kiss cruise if you're a Kiss fanatic I think you know the reactions from the people that go. 
And boy, what a cruise they had, you know, this last one. I, I can't imagine how they're going to top it. I don't know how they can top it, to be honest. But I think every if, if it was as exciting every year, it's exciting even when Ace and I weren't on there. I can promise you that. But yeah. I know what they do. It's 24-7 KISS. These fans are treated to, to the most incredible experience. Yeah. And, uh, so, know, so. so, and then we'll, we'll end on this because I know time is precious. Um mm-hmm. You are doing that stuff with Todd and and Brent and Zach, and you're on the boat and you have crews and you got the great. Do we see this come off the boat? You know, will, will there be a show at, at at the whiskey in in LA or or do you, do you do a small you know mm-hmm. select ten dates just you know sort of a summer vacation kind of tour because it is great, it is fantastic, right. and and not everybody can get yeah. on the cruise for whatever reason they can't get away right. from work they can't afford it it they they live in some right. other you know. Um, do you? Well, I'll be clear. Yeah, the, you know, I know where you're going with it. And look, I'm, I'll be clear. I didn't put together the great set only for the cruise. I mean, these guys, right. I would love to do more things with. When and how, and logistically speaking, you know, they're part of. Uh, they're a big part of uh, Slash's band, Brent and Todd. Zach works quite often uh, as well, being uh, he's the you know my my he was my new secret weapon on on the cruise. But I don't know. All I know is these guys are wonderful. I love them. I play with Graham Funk. <clears throat> there are times, even during my 18 years of Graham Funk, that I've been able to go off for weeks at a time to do my own thing. So I, I hope there'll be some opportunities that we can coordinate things, you know, and we'll see what happens in the future, you know. But uh, I'm not going to tell you that, let's say, if, if we're booked on next year's cruise, if that happens, that that's the only place you could see me with these guys. I, I would hope they're could be some other opportunities, but I, I just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I'm just really very, very, very fortunate to accomplish what I did with these guys. And I, and I, we, we get along anyway, and we've all worked together in different times, you know, and, and, and what's really funny is they, they were chomping at the bits to make this a, a success. And I think everybody's just oh, so thrilled and pleased that the, that the, that the fans responded the way we hoped because, um, you know, we put a lot of heart and soul into it, so I'm, I'm, I, I couldn't be happier. This has been such a proud moment for me to, to really shine in front of exactly the right people. Not, you know, you realize when you do a cruise, you're playing for an international crowd, you know, and that's that's a great thing. It's not like just going to Norway and kicking ass at a few gigs. You, you know, I mean, we're yeah, yeah. mostly just people in Norway are going to see it. Here's the cruise. So you got people from all over the world enjoying the music, and you know, there's Kiss fans everywhere. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's great, you know. Yeah, and and it was a great place to do it, you know. And great great venue. Maybe I mean, because I think fans have to. I think fans know and appreciate the fact that they can't have a a, you know a sixty city tour. It's just not feasible. And there's there's all those. But maybe at some point, you know, strap some five or six together. Maybe do some kind of live download Mm -hmm. or just some kind of. Memorializing of of the of the event right. so that people can, you know, throw it in their iTunes and throw it in their their whatever. Right. Anyway, that's that's my hope because it, it no, is no, great. It's I, fantastic. I, I I appreciate you looking at it like that, and and I have we haven't even you know we didn't absorb it all even to recognize how we could do more of it yet. To be honest, those guys uh, get so busy. You know, uh, Todd and Brent have this other side band, and yep. they were off in Canada now. 
uh, we all got together about a week after did to have a little brunch at my house. I cooked, you know, omelets for everybody and we shared a lot of memories and then off they were. And then, you know, they're going to be, I'm on the road. I got these dates with Grand Funk. They're, they're doing that toke thing in Canada. And then, uh, you know, I saw Zach over Thanksgiving and, and, but, but we're tight. We're going to stay tight and we're going to, we're going to always have that discussion. So I just, I, I hope for more. I really do. Yep. I do too. Uh, Bruce, always, always a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time today, and uh, yeah, let's 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 talk more. Kiss. It'll be 2019. Will be a great Always, year to be a Kiss yeah. fan. Absolutely. Yeah, and and may I share with everybody? I have this wonderful new website. That oh yes. I worked really hard on with a guy, um, and it, and there's a little story I just wanted to attach to it real quick. Kiss fans are the best. You know that. There was a time when I did a Chris Jericho show on Sirius XM, actually, and yes. I mentioned my website. Somebody owns BruceKulik.com because I think he made a reference like that. So they could see you on BruceKulik.com. I went, no, actually, somebody owns that. Not, you know, one of those people that, that take the names of, of artists, you know what I mean? So they, they you squat. have to groveling to them. I know. Yeah. And, 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 and then about a year later, this guy from Norway just contacts me and he says, I have bought BruceKulik.com and I want to gift it to you. And I was like, my, my, the people doing Kulik.net, my old website, were like, no way. This is this is a, a hoax. Don't even believe it. And I said, well, I'm going to play this thing out because I, this could be fun. You know, it could be real. <laughs> you know, and it turned out to be very real. The guy really did uh, uh, acquire it and gifted it to me, uh, handed over the keys. And and last December, I did meet the guy last year and I uh, had him at a guest at my show. And him and his wife were wonderful. Um, and he did it because he's a fan, you know, and then I met with people that could help me do the new simpler version of like a WordPress kind of website, as they call it. And um, I finally launched it like two weeks ago, BruceKulik.com. I'm very proud of it. And there's some really awesome photos through the years on there that I, you know, photos I never shared before. And then of course there's some merchandise there that has not been offered before either uh, that they can dig into. So they should check it out. BruceKulik.com. Yeah, Bruce Gulick, and of course the merchandise. Uh, you know, you do sign stuff and personalize stuff, and it's all you. So yeah. your fans need to know that. And that was probably the hardest thing to set up, if you know what I mean. There's always like, all right, here's a photo gallery of the '70s. Here's a photo gallery of the '80s. Here's my blog. Here's my Twitter feed. How about setting up the orders with all the different shipping? Oh my God, you know what you're offering and how it how it can be done. But everything's working really well right now. I mean, I, I, I tried to do it as simply as possible. You know, combining multiple orders can be complicated. So when somebody wants this one signed this way and that one, oh, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So, oh, yeah. Uh, but I, you know, I, I'll make it. I'll make it. Uh, I'm always trying to do my best job with that and the people that help me with it. So, uh, you know, uh, it's all it's all a win. And anything I can I can do to, um, you know, you know, put a put a something of my merch in their home i'm very happy to try to make it happen right that's all yeah and uh just uh while we're on the subject somebody did steal or squat on mitchlafon.com so if anybody wants to gift it to there you go i know i yeah, tried i tried yeah, to register it a couple of weeks ago and somebody actually has yep. mitchlafon.com and it it yep. cycles back to a kiss site and it's like bastard <laughs> Give it back to me anyway. Well, I'm glad we're talking about it now because, you know, I'll just say a public service for you. You know, Mitch is a wonderful guy. I've known him a long time. So whoever has that, you know, should be a lot kinder about it. And I really wonder when they squat it, like you're saying, 
when the art, when the actual mutual fund contacts those people, obviously they're going to say, you know, a lot of money. And I wonder what happens when, you know, you know, just, just Joe Blow calls up and says, how much for the Mitchell Lafon.com? Yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah. And and it's just, it's strange. Also the thought process It's like, listen, yes, you see my name once in a while on Blabbermouth and yes, I'm Westwood one, but, but Mitch Lafon is not a millionaire. It's not like you're going to end up having a $5 million payday by buying that. And you're paying all those hosting fees in the mint. It's, 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 and yes. whatever it was bizarre it's for me, weird. but but yes, two weeks ago I tried and it is taken, and I was like, "You fucking with me, really?" Okay, yeah. anyway, uh, but BruceKulik.com. dot com. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, just go visit BruceKulik.com. dot com, and uh, it actually, by the way, I have it right in front of me on the computer. It looks fucking great. The the pictures, the colors, the the gallery, Thank the you. blog. It's yeah. it's it's Good. stunning. Really nicely. That. It's it's. Yeah. The 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 term I guess is user friendly. It's very easy to find anything and, and move about idea. it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's great. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. That. Always yeah. a pleasure. I, I worked really hard with this guy Tim uh, to get it right, and and I'm I'm real proud of it. So thank you. Yeah, it All looks. Right. Yeah, it's not clunky. It's 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 smooth. It it scrolls. It's great. Right. Good. Merci, merci. Thank good. you, sir. Good, good, good. And uh, we will talk. Uh, we will talk again soon. And of course, it is uh, December, okay. so Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And we will yeah. uh, we will reconvene yeah, in 2019. Yes, thank you. I'm sure I'll see you. If it's not with Grand Funk, it will be me. And uh, please, uh, you know, thanks again for the invitation. I appreciate it. Okay. Cheers. All right. Have a good one. Take care, Mitch. Bye bye. Bye bye now. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. And a very big thank you to Bruce Kulick and uh, lots of great detail there about the Kiss Cruise and all kinds of Kiss stuff. But uh, let us keep the uh, cavalcade of Kissdom going because, as we've said before, it is Alan's greatest pleasure. And so, um, Bob Kulick, Mr. Alan, you know Bob from... Well, where exactly do you know Bob from? You, he, he's, to me, been in Kiss, Meatloaf, but to you, he is the guitarist for... Well, he was in Wasp uh, yes. for a while with uh, Blackie Lawless, who um, was definitely a character. Um, I find it interesting that uh, I hear that Blackie now lives on a horse farm north of L.A., and it's a devout born-again Christian, which when I remember that uh, when I knew Blackie, and uh, we nearly worked together, we talked about it for a bit, um, but when I knew Blackie, Blackie used to go on stage in a pair of black chaps and a codpiece, which meant that when he turned around to the audience, there was a very definite full moon. Um, he had the habit of getting pieces of raw meat and throwing them into the audience. Uh, he brought in an, an incredibly dangerous contraption that uh, illuminated the word wasp and then sent f- flames into the air. Uh, and if anybody's ever been to the troubadour, which is, you know, the insides is all wood, you kind of got nervous about, um, suspended his girlfriend from a rack and... Um, beat her over the head with a, a, a rubber facsimile, facsimile of a medieval um, piece of armament, um, and she would bite into a, uh, a, a theatrical blood thing in her mouth and have blood spurting out of her mouth. Um, 
Yeah, Blackie was a character, and I, I must confess there was a moment when I went, yeah, I'm not sure that uh, uh, all, all the glitz and glamour that Blackie's bringing on stage is exactly my taste and what I want to do, um, but he sure knew how to entertain an, an L.A. audience. Yeah, he really does, and in fact, you are right about him being uh, born-again stuff, because there are some songs... Uh, like uh, Animal Fuck Like a Beast, sorry for the folks out there, that he refuses to perform now and a few others. But uh, here is another fun fact about Wasp. Next week, we are supposed to have Steve Riley of L.A. Guns as a guest, and he, of course, got his start in Wasp. So, yes, so it is the the Wasp cavalcade. It's all Wasp, all Kiss, and all Foreigner on uh, Rock Talk these days, which... It's not a bad thing, but... Uh, you, know, you, you know, you should try and get Blackie to do an interview because it would be very interesting to find out what caused the 180 in his uh, consciousness and how he went from being one of the um, most identifiable characters on Sunset and having the stagecraft that he did to raising horses north of L.A., and not wishing to fuck like a beast anymore. Um, I'd be very curious to know what what transpired there. Well, uh, I have good news good, for good. you. Good oh, news you, for you. You have Blackie lined up. No, I actually had, uh, before you were co-hosting regularly, Blackie was on my February 25th, 2018 episode here on uh, Rock Talk with Westwood One, and the show is Blackie Lawless, and I had Chuck Garrick from Alice Cooper's band, and oh, you're going to love this. Chuck Garrick was also in L.A. Guns with Steve Riley. So, <laughs> so, so, yes. Everybody should check out the archive. Yes, check out the archive. Uh, I'm trying to think. It was February, so I have it in front of me, actually. February 25th, 2018. We started at Rock Talk on Westwood One, I believe, in January of 2018. So it's probably, since the episodes aren't numbered, it probably would be the second or third episode. But you can do it like I just did. Go to Google, type in Rock Talk Blackie Lawless, and the very, very first one should say Wasp Blackie Lawless, Alice Cooper, Chuck Garrett on omni.fm slash shows rock talk, blah, blah, blah. And that, of course, is the landing uh, page. Omni is the one that hosts all the shows for Westwood One. Uh, so you can go uh, pick, you know, get that up or, or go to Spotify or, or Apple Podcasts and type in Rock Talk with, with Blackie. And it is there. And we did discuss that. And we also, during that interview, discussed the uh, imagery in fact here let me go to the show's description here it goes uh, first up on this episode wasp blackie lawless discusses his new album re-idolized the soundtrack to the crimson idol re-recording the classic album with his new band and its effect on the sonics touring north america later this year if possible being a member of the new york dolls did you know that he was actually a member of the new york dolls for a little bit mr niven yeah Yes, yes, I did know that, but I uh, forgave him. Yes, his friendship, yeah, well, his friendship with Ace Fraley, which, of course, ties us into the whole kissing, uh, religious iconography in Wasp, the role of religion in his life and lyrics, reconciling, reconciling, I should say, past material with current beliefs, PMRC, inspirations from Alice Cooper, 
uh, making art to make you think, fame, and much, much more. So uh, do check out that episode from February 2018 with Blackie Lawless. And I guess well, – well, it, it, yes. It's, it's, it's a good moment, I think, to just in general say there is an, an, an incredible archive there and recommend that people occasionally just flip through it and, and catch uh, interviews from – people they're interested in um you've got a massive archive there it's wonderful yeah and and i will say this and it might sound a little self-serving or patting myself on the back but you can go back to the archives and listen because most of the interviews are sort of historic pieces in the sense that it's not just tell me about the album tell me about the tour thanks for talking to me we'll see you next week they are somewhat timeless yes of course they do at the beginning of, you know, the first couple of minutes of each interview has that because that's why we're on the phone and that's why the interview is taking place. We are promoting stuff or the, the artist is there to promote something, but they will uh, evolve into the history of, and you can listen to it in 2018, 2019, 2020, and go back and listen, you know, so when Blackie, for example, in this case, is talking about religious iconography and all that, that has nothing to do with, you know, February 25th, 2018. Uh, and like most of the interviews, you, you can go back. Even these ones here with Bruce and Bob Kulik, you can listen to them six months down the road and they will still be as entertaining and as valid. It's not uh, disposable uh, fodder. It's it really anyway. I know that sounds a little sort of self-serving, and perhaps it was, but it's true. No, I, no. I I think as uh, almost a third party, I I can say that um, it's not self-serving, and the interviews are of depth and worthwhile. And I wouldn't be at all surprised at some time in the uh, future when rock and roll is. Um, completely changed or non-existent there'll, there'll be uh, people in uh, colleges who will come back and reference it and find out what on earth we were all up to hopefully hopefully and uh, with that here is the one the only and okay fine i'll do it in french le seul et unique bob Kulik. We are speaking with Grammy Award-winning producer Bob Kulik. The new album is Pure Fire, the ultimate Kiss tribute, and there are some incredible, incredible musicians on there, including Dee Schneider, Steve Lukather, my boss, Chris Jericho, and a bunch more. Bob, absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you again. We, we've done these before, but this is exciting. I love this. Thank you so much for saying that, Mitch. It is very exciting and always a pleasure to talk to you. You always ask intuitive questions and always push the envelope, and we love you for that. And I drive you nuts, I think, at the same time. But but let's. Uh, let's but I think what's what's particularly uh, poignant about yeah. this release is the fact that Kiss the band is going on the end of the road tour and they have said for now that there's no new material that's going to be coming out and stuff. So, so this slides in there beautifully and the musicianship and the people you have on there, uh, absolutely stunning. So, so talk to me about putting this album together. It is, um, is it fair to say a resurrection of, of something that, that you did a few years back and, um, Talk to me about putting together and who, who, how did you sort of choose who got to sing and play on what tracks? A lot of great questions in there. This is a re-release from the year 2004. So first and foremost about this is the fact that 
we did not use or have the modern day pro tools or computers that we use today. These recordings were recorded on digital tapes, D88s. If you look at the making of DVD, which is also of special interest, because now what you're looking at are the artists that participated as they were 14 years ago and what they had to say. And so alongside their organic performances, we didn't beat Detective to drums. We didn't put the session on a grid. We didn't auto-tune the vocals. We didn't copy and paste guitars. We didn't make up solos from individual notes. Nothing was fixed on this. This was performances, including your boss, Chris Jericho, whose performance stands the test of time. I remember how much fun we had. And that's the other thing about this record, the spirit of what this was in the day people who worked with them in different capacities. One of them, my brother in the band, another one of them, like Steve Lukather, he played on Gene's solo record. Mike Picaro, may he rest in peace, was one of the bass players that worked on some of the Kiss stuff. Uh, so the connection then goes to the Kip Wingers and the Mark Slaughters. They were the opening band at the time for Kiss. And so the connections are all there. And the beauty of this in its own way is that while this list looked impressive 14 years ago, it's actually more impressive now because of what these artists have gone on to do or the fact that two of them are no longer with us. To me, is something special to be admired that, again, we're so used to now hearing recordings done on Pro Tools and fixed and put up on grids and made perfect. This is not one of those. And yet, these performances stand the test of time, big time. And by the way, don't forget Carmen uh, Apice or a piece that who worked with you on that Paul Stanley solo album back in 78. That's correct. That's correct. He, he was definitely another of the people who had worked with a Kiss related thing as Bobby Rock did working with Vinnie Vincent and Mark Slaughter. So there is there are several connections on here that 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 show up, you know, when, when you look at it. But when you hear Tommy Shaw's story, we don't associate Tommy Shaw necessarily with Kiss. But what he talks about in the video portion of the program, the DVD portion of the program, is how his band, Sticks, got the break of opening for Kiss because the other band's band, band broke down. And so the other band couldn't show up and they were hired at the last minute. They got up on this big stage and realized that's what we want to be. And, and he tells this story in the video from 2004, and it is special for that reason, because that band is still together and still going, and he's still out there doing it. Yeah, he really is. And of course, uh, you did mention uh, a couple of folks who passed away, and one of them being Lemmy. He doesn't need another name. I think when we say Lemmy, everybody knows what that means. But you have him doing Shout It Out Loud with Jennifer Batten, who's just an incredible, incredible guitarist. But what was it like to get Lemmy, the guy from Motorhead, to come in and do such a light, fun, almost pop song? I mean, because that's not what he's known for. Great, by the way, idea to have him do that song in particular. Well, interestingly enough, uh, the producers of this record, uh, Bruce Brier, who, who alongside me produced Motorhead from 2000 to 2004. We were the guys that did God Save the Queen and Jumpin' Jack Flash and We Are Motorhead and The Game and Whiplash that won the Grammy 
So Lemmy was our friend. And when I approached him about this, I, I kind of teased him. Uh, you know, I want you to pick the song, but here's something that might entertain, you know? And then I said, so what about if you play with girls? What do you mean? He said, Jennifer Batten, Samantha Maloney. How does that sound for a lineup? He loved the idea and it was something unique. Jennifer is an amazing guitar player as the solo totally shows, you know, and, and that's a combination one would rarely ever hear. Michael Jackson's guitar player and Lemmy Kilmister. So this is the other thing about trying to make lineups that would intrigue and also do those that would be more obvious that be like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's hear what they sound like together. You know, like in Chris's situation, you know, where he had a, a core of who he wanted to use. And we just added to that. But the, the Lemmy thing to me, you know, hearing him sing Shouted Out Loud, it, you know, is something, as you say, because it is a major key song and, and something that is uh, comparatively for him, I guess, happy. You know, to me, people have turned to me after hearing it and said, it's so endearing because of him, the way he sings Shouted Out Loud, the character of his voice gives it a personality that's beyond Gene's. Because as you say, there is only one Lemmy. So no one's going, who is that? They know who it is. And, and everybody's getting a kick out of it. They so really that's are. That's one of my favorites. That's, in there. that's oh, one of my favorites, of course. It is. And, and I'm just looking over the, the lineup again. And, and we're forgetting one here. Ainsley Dunbar. He, he was called in during the Revenge Days where your brother, and your brother can attest to this. And he was tried out as a drummer before Eric Singer. They, they brought in Ainsley, <laughs> right? He tells the story in the, uh, in the DVD, on the DVD. It was See? just like, you know, I didn't think I, w- I was stylistically right for them, but I went and auditioned anyway. He actually tells that story. That's very interesting. Yeah. And let's remember, Ainsley Dunbar is the drummer that played on Still of the Night on that White Snake record. Yeah. That's Ainsley Dunbar. What a Ainsley record. Dunbar is monster of monster drummers. One of the monsters, seriously. Look at his discography. OMG, OMG, Mitch. Oh, Seriously. It, oh it, it, it's, it is ridiculous. And, and I'm glad, by the way, that when Whitesnake put out the 30th anniversary edition, which, in fact, for some reason I have sitting right next to me here at the computer, they actually finally credited him and said, yeah, he's on this. And that was nice to see. Um, Bruce Kulik, I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you know who I'm talking about. You get him doing He's God of record too, amazingly. I know. Enough. Right. And you get him doing God of Thunder, which I think is brilliant because we we look at Bruce and we look at all the stuff in the eighties and we see we see some of the pop influences on Crazy Nights and stuff. But your brother is a master guitarist, a shredder. He he really and to finally get him doing a song like God of Thunder, a nice heavy song, a little bit like unholy. Well done. Well played. Uh, talk to me about having having him do one of the classic Kiss songs and not just, hey, let's do, you know, the, the two sides of the coin or something. Talk to me about having doing one of the old time classics. Well, you know, having been in the band, you know, uh, I, of course, ran through a few possibilities. My opinion, his opinion, what he thought. And, and we both agreed upon this as like, well, this would be a good showcase for, as you're saying, uh, more of the, shall we say, the unholy uh, uh, vibe, guitar-wise. And, you know, and, and we kept it, that one, you know, but vocally, it didn't want to stray too far from what it, what it is, you know. And, and, and so on that one, you know, Buzz Osborne from the Melvins, 
but if you look at the rest of the band, it's it's the metalites, you know, Blasco, uh, Ozzy's bass player, and Carmine Apice. You know, that's that's some heavy band there. So uh, that one is, is a standout track for sure as well. Buzz Osborne definitely does that one to justice with his voice. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, listen, we, we've got this tribute out, but but let's take a few minutes here just to talk about your involvement with the band. Because you, you have been on numerous albums over the years, both Paul's solo album and, and uh, Unmasked and Killers and, and Alive 2. Talk to me a little bit about that, because I know the story's been told, but as the band wraps it up and they hit off to the end of the road, do you look back and say maybe I should have joined them. Maybe I shouldn't have deferred to Bruce. Maybe I should have on creatures of the night, raised my hand a little higher and say, what about me? I mean, how do you sort of look at your, your, I don't want to say your, your involvement, involvement, non-involvement with kiss. What's the best word for that? But um, talk to me about sort of the the brush with greatness, if you want, right. To use a David Letterman term. Well, I would say that I've been involved throughout the years even from back when I auditioned in the band, becoming a friend and, and somebody that they could reach out to when they needed me. Kiss Alive too, Due to the circumstance with AIDS, they had somebody that A, they knew who could play with them. And they knew that I would not betray them by running out into the street outside Electric Lady Studios and yell, guess who I just played with? So... Starting with that and then moving through the decades of writing songs with Gene, playing on Paul's record, doing Paul's tour, all of those things, doing recordings with Paul actually in 2004 for his solo record. We did versions of Every Time I See You Around and other songs like that. So my connection and then my brother in the band and all of the personal connection and all of that has been throughout what's been going on. But I have a career outside of that, as, as we're discussing, as a producer. The fun, one of the fun things about this, which you touched on, was that because I worked with them, because I played with them, that this was more special to me, as, as was the Alice Cooper tribute that I produced with that old star cast, which, because I had played those songs on the Welcome to My Nightmare tour with Alice back in the day, I replaced Steve Hunter for one of the tours. I felt so personally about playing those Alice songs because I played it with them live. And these songs played a couple of these with Paul live. So to me, you know, it, it, it was like a situation where I actually had both ends of the spectrum covered for this record and, and for the Alice record that I'm mentioning. And that to me helped, helped me because I'm, I was passionate. 2004, Bruce Brier and I, knowing all the musicians that we knew at the time knowing all of these people and working with them on a bunch of different records, either, you know, producing Motorhead or producing Ripper Rowans or, or, or Lynch Mob or whoever we were working with. Those players all wanted to participate in stuff like this because they knew that Bruce Brier and I would make it right, both sonically, combination-wise, and song choice-wise. And that's why it still stands up. If this was a piece of poo... Nobody even want to listen to it now, and I would be embarrassed by it. Au contraire. This is organic performances by people who dished it out, not fixed, not done the way people record now. Yeah. Uh, and to me, 
That is the hugest thing about it. Plus the ability to to see it, to see some of these artists talk about Kiss. Lemmy just saying simply, you know, I wouldn't want to have to wear that makeup every day. Was an amazing comment by somebody who's a rock star. He didn't. He wouldn't have wanted to go through that. Right, and and wear that thirty five pounds of gear. But but let me ask you about this the, the the Bob and Bruce Kulik cruise thing from from last year, where you actually got, and of course the. Um, the Keith LaRue organized a kiss convention out in, I guess, Indianapolis or Indiana, uh, where you actually got to go on stage. Where was it? Indianapolis. Right. Where, where you got out, in- you got to do all American man. You got to do larger than life. You got to finally play these songs and say, yeah, this was me. Uh, talk to me about those, those two performances. And by the way, that band with Todd Kearns, forget about it. I mean, what a fucking brilliant talent he is. Um, but absolutely, and in fact, he's such a brilliant, brilliant talent that he sings the first song on my solo record that I put out last year. Because the guy is an amazing singer, absolutely. Todd Kearns and Brent Fitz and Brent, yeah, these are Flash's uh, rhythm section, and so, the better rhythm section you couldn't find. So, so what was it like to actually get to to be first of all on stage with your brother, and then have a guy who can sing his ass off, and Brent who can play, and do the the songs that you know, nowhere to run and stuff that people for many years didn't know was you. And here you are standing on, on the cruise, a great platform and at the convention and saying, yep. And we're going to do these. What, what was that like for you? Well, the cruise itself, due to the circumstance of what you're describing, um, we rehearsed basically once or twice and that was it. Everybody knows these songs like the back of their hand. So the ones that I didn't know to start off with, I made sure I knew like the back of my hand. So I was confident that playing with my brother, who, because we're brothers, nobody could play together the way we do. In that way, having that sibling cranial connection. So I knew it was going to be really good. And, you know, I, I know he wanted to make a point uh, to show what he was capable of and to have me there as well was the double dagger. And what I found out was that if you can make magic, and that's what that was, I look at that and I'm impressed. That's not easy for me. That's not easy for me who always thinks he can do better. But I looked at that and what I saw was what I see in every great band when I saw them, Led Zeppelin, the Beatles, and all the rest. The singular word to define it, magic. It just had the magic. Oh, it, had, it had that magic had touch, magic. that's for sure. And part of the reason was because of the fact that nobody really knew what we were going to do. It was kind of a, a secret. Bruce and I were on the Kiss Confidential panel, but we were also going to play. And then who are they going to play with? What are they going to play? The element of surprise in tow to come out and dish it out like that, to have that kind of magic and serendipity, synchronicity with the crowd, that was the magic. To look out there and see everybody singing those songs and looking at us and us looking at them, that was the magic because I could see it in their faces. I could see that they were blown away. There were people crying. There were people crying. What does that say? That's a lot. It says a lot. I didn't think that was possible anymore. 
I didn't think that was possible anymore. And then to see it live online, I, I didn't think that that was do one show that have that response that really showed me something. If you're great, if you're really great and you've got the magic, somebody's going to notice. And they did. And I'm thankful. Thank you. Yeah, they really did. And I did, too. Is that something that, that since they noticed that maybe it, it, it triggers a little something in the back of your head where you say, hey, maybe we should get these four guys in, into my studio or Bruce's studio or whoever and maybe just lay it down and do a new tribute album or a new, you know, Bob and Bruce does kiss versions kind of because I would buy that. I mean, I, I would certainly plunk down 20 bucks to get that on a CD. Uh, and I know many fans listening to me today would. Uh, is that something that you might consider at some point? Or or it's like, no, no, this was a magical one-time thing. Let it go. No, I, you know, again, uh, as a guitar player, as a producer, as an arranger, as an artist, um, I'm open for whatever would make magic. You know, uh, and I don't see why that couldn't happen. Let's see what the future holds. Uh, that would be great. Now, so so let me just get you. I know you. You. you I'm going to ask you some questions about the Kiss days anyway. So here. So here we go. Uh, first one. Rumor is, and you know, as Kiss fans, we love rumor. That is our number one passion, even more so than the music. I think at some point. But on the Alive Two album, you of course did those songs on side four. A lot of speculation that. On the rest of the album, some of the overdubs and songs like Hard Luck Woman and Tomorrow Tonight that were done in the studio were you. Um, true or false? False. Totally false. Totally false. Okay. Um, let us move on to Unmasked. You got to play... Uh, the studio side is what I did. That's, that's, that was what they really needed me for. Okay. So, so there's no overdubs studio or like... So you no, 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 no fixing of Ace's parts. No, um, no, well, okay. no, 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 no. I, I try to at an analog machine, try to fix his parts. I'd need his guitar and have to play like him with two different people. No, 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 no. Okay. Um, talk to me a little bit about the involvement on Unmasked. We know that Anton Fig came in and did drums. You're in there on Naked City, which frankly it's probably the best song on there that and maybe tomorrow but what was how did you get involved on naked city did did ace not was not able to come up with the parts there was a time crunch and ace wasn't available you just had a better part talk to me a little bit about well, that story naked 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 city is different in that uh, i am one of the songwriters i am one of the composers the the main figure of the song was the figure that i wrote boom boom that the minor progression figure that frames the chorus in the intro uh and the verse uh, i wrote the music to those so that was a co-write between myself and pepe castro from balance who came in and helped out with some melodies and gene's lyrics and then vinnie poncia got involved with the final version of the song as it was recorded by them and so my involvement was was mainly just songwriter and this was at the time when i was writing with gene and four of the songs that were written around that time are on his vault collection now. So Naked City was just one of the collaborations that I'd had with him at the time. And he was meticulous about saving all of that. I have my own cassette copies, which he made me take a picture and send to him to make sure that 
he wasn't missing anything. He's like, nope, that's the cassette I have, exactly the same songs. It was hilarious when he was putting his vault together. Yeah, yeah. I, I still need to get a copy of that vault. Uh, you know, it. Yeah, at some at some point I will. Um, you mentioned, of course, balance, and uh, you and I share a friend in common named Chuck Berge. He, of course, played on the first Bon Jovi record back in the day. You were a studio studio musician around that area. Did did you play on? I mean, I know you played on the on the Billy Squire. Were you at all involved in what Tony Bon Jovi was doing over at the Power Station and John Bon Jovi? Were you indeed okay? Indeed, because that's where Balance recorded, and that's where at that point that was the studio to go to. So when I worked with Diana Ross, it was at the Power Station. So all of the big artists were coming through there. But amazingly enough, one day hanging out at the studio with Tony Bon Jovi, who was the co-owner along with a guy named Bob Walters. And there was somebody out in the studio. And I'm like, who is that? And he's just like, oh, that's my cousin, John. And I'm like, well, he's a really good looking kid. And he's just like, he sings. I'm like, he does? And he's just like, yeah, Lance, Lance Quinn, who was one of the people that worked out of the power station at that time, sort of you know, staff engineer, producer, writer, jack of all trades, really good guy. Uh, they decided they wanted to do some demos for what was John B- Bon Jovi, not Bon Jovi, Bon yep. Jovi. Bon Jovi back then, right? Uh, With an extra little Jovi. letter. Yep. <laughs> exactly. So it was hilarious because while Tony Bon Jovi was one of the greatest engineer producers that I ever worked with and studio designers at Studio A at Power Station was other than Abbey Road and Electric Lady, the greatest studio that I ever worked in, you know, he was not what you would call a pretty boy. And to have his cousin look like that was the reason that I even mentioned it to him, because I just thought it was odd. Who was that? That's my cousin to me. To everybody was kind of funny. You guys are cousins? Because they look so totally different, you know. But the reality was that I was asked to play on a few of the demos. And embarrassingly enough, I couldn't tell you any of the titles. I'm not even sure they had the lyrics or melodies written back in the day. Sometimes you just cut tracks and then, you know, the people that would write the melody and lyric would sit there and go like, okay, well, we, we got this in song order. Let's write some melody and lyrics. Uh, at the same time that this was going on, I was managed by Lieber Krebs who also managed Aerosmith. And so when they heard the balance record, they also ran to power station and worked there. And that's how Steven Tyler wrote lyrics was, He'd have Tony Bon Jovi play him the tracks and he'd sit there and write the lyrics in the studio with the, with the speakers blasting. And we all thought, gee, how interesting that that's, that was how he wrote. So it was a very interesting place to be around, needless to say. All the stars that were there, probably, if you look at it realistically, Billy Squire, John Bon Jovi, you know, uh, all of the bands that worked there, Bruce Springsteen, Billy Squire, all of them. It would be gazillions of records sold, just gazillions that were recorded at that studio. Just, and Aldo Nova, as we said. As well. Yeah, I'll ask you that, about that Aldo Nova because he he of course hung out at the power station back then, and he played on on John's first album, did some backing vocals and keyboards and some rhythms and blah blah blah. Did you at all strike up a friendship with with Aldo or, or meet with him or play on anything with him, whether it's John Bon Jovi or some other project? Was there ever a actually, connection? Actually, we were. We actually, yeah, we were friendly because he was also turned on to Power Station by hearing the balance record because we were label mates 
on Lenny Pizzi's Epic Portrait Records, distributed by Sony. So we were technically on Sony. It was a division of Sony through Epic. And that was the label Aldo was on as well. So, and he worked with Tony Bon Jovi. Who wouldn't have wanted to work with that guy back in the day? What I'm saying to you is that, talk about magic. Tony Bon Jovi, as an engineer producer, really knew how to make magic. And he could cut. I remember for Balance once, he, he took a 4-4 bar and turned it into a 2-4 bar. And it made the song because of the turnaround. And I thought to myself, well, he really, he really taught me something. That something as simple as a tiny two-bar edit to make a 2-4 bar for a turnaround into the bridge works so well that that song was actually a top 25 single. So for Balance, not that we ever did anything, but that is a fact. And I wish people could have been around, again, back in the day when things were recorded organically uh, on two-inch tape, as opposed to the Pure Fire record, where we had at least advanced to digital tapes. But it was still not what people do today or are accustomed to today. And hence, the playing and the singing and all of that had to be better. The talent pool was better. I say this without, without any hesitation because I know for a fact it's true. And I'm not saying that there aren't talented people out there today, because there are, and there are a lot of them, but it's different. It's way different. When in 19, whatever year it was that Phil Spector recorded River Deep Mountain High with an orchestra and Tina Turner, she might've had to sing that song 30 times to get what they got out of it. I defy somebody to do that today. I defy them to do that today. No inner ears, nobody had inner ears back then. Nobody had monitors back then for live performances. You either had the magic and the talent or you didn't qualify. Today, that's way different. Well, I agree, and I, and I think that the biggest example that you can point to is auto-tune. Anybody who has a career thanks to auto-tune yeah, wouldn't have had a career in 1970 or 1965 because if you couldn't sing it, too bad. You, you never got on a stage, and so... That, that, that one technology has diluted the talent pool, uh, if I can say it that way. There's a little, little too much water in the wine when our, with our singers these days. Um, I will wrap up with this because we're, we're hitting half an hour. But uh, the quickly, the, the Kiss Killers album, uh, you're on four tracks. They are spectacular. Nowhere to Run should be a top 10 Kiss song on, on everybody's list. Um, just quickly talk to me about those. Were, again, were, were they just they, the band needed new songs for this compilation and in you went? Or was there, hey, come and join us and just play on these four songs. And and if you like it, you can stay with Like, What was sort of the, 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 the setup to get you into the studio and help them out on these four songs? Well, Kiss Killers turned out to be what you would call a uh, a way to put something out without making a full commitment. Right, a bridge they were album. working on Creatures of the Night. Yeah, they were working on Creatures of the Night and they really wanted to get that right. And uh, they were also looking at replacements for Ace at the time. And so having me around, I actually sat there when Vinny showed up. I was actually there when Steve Ferris played. So, you know, I was around playing on some, one day I'm doing Partners in Crime and the next day it's like, what do you think of this guy, Vinny? You know, so it was, right at the same time. So it was kind of like a, a whole thing that was going on there, but nowhere to run 
That was spectacular. Yes. That, when I heard that, and when I got involved with that and putting that solo on that and just leaving it for what it was, you know, that had the magic. And so much so, Paul knew how I felt about that song. And so for the 89 tour, we rehearsed that song. We never did it once. But we've rehearsed it. Oh, tragic. And by the way, first of all, tragic. And that's that a hard song to sing, and that's why. Yeah. Even then. But that with, on that 89 tour with Eric Singer on drums and, and you and there, you could have pulled it off. I'm I'm sure. Uh, honestly, I'm sure. But well, I, w- I wish, you know, I mean, and, and maybe in the closet there where I got a bunch of this cassettes of rehearsals and stuff. I should look there. There actually might be a rehearsal of No Way to Run on there. I'm going to look. Thanks for mentioning that. That's, I might actually have it on a rehearsal because I have a whole bunch of cassettes of this and that and the other thing. Believe me. We need a Bob Kulig vault uh, package, but no, but the the one working on it, working on it, working on it. (laughs) The the one tragedy of that song is that it was on this compilation that wasn't available in the States for many, many years. I mean, I think if that was on Creatures of the Night or even Lick It Up, it would have been an MTV hit. I mean, I just think it, it was so good that had it been in a new album and not basically on a compilation and had it been spotlighted, it could have been a lead-off single. I mean, and that, that you know, that's what I feel. Yeah, um, I, yeah I mean, it, it, a great song, indeed. Indeed, you're absolutely right. All right, so uh, to, just real quick, you, you said that Paul was asking, hey, what do you think about this guy, Vinny? Well, what did you think about this guy, Vinny, <laughs> back in the day? Well, I, I, the concern seemed to be, like anybody's concern would be, having somebody in the band that you're just going to have to get to know. If it's not somebody that you knew before, it's a getting to know you. That's what it is. So that was their concern. In your opinion, Bob, you know, uh, I knew him as Vinny Cassano. I'd met him back in the day, even before that. But there he was. And they turned him into Vinny Vincent. You know, I, I, I thought, I said, well, the guy's a tremendous guitar player. And the fact that he was a writer to me was like, and you get a, and you get a bonus writer. Now, if you can't get along... You're, you're going to have to see. There's no way to know that. So, and and that's what went wrong is that it, it, they they couldn't come to terms with, you know, what it was. That yeah. you know, I guess Vinny must have thought it would be more of a band, where by that time it was it was more of Gene and Paul being in charge, since they had always been there and it was their band, and other people had left. This is what happens. Yeah, and and listen, he he was he well he was he is a great songwriter. You can say whatever you want about him. He he can write a hit, and you cannot and wrote hits with them. Correct. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, you can't correct. deny that. Um, the new album is, of course, Pure Fire, the ultimate Kiss tribute. Uh, Bob, always always a pleasure, and of course, uh, I just have to say it. The best track on there is the Chris Jericho King of the Nighttime World, and no, I wasn't paid to say that, but it doesn't hurt. <laughs> No, uh, and no but, uh, I said to you, his performance stands the test of time. He sounds great. And his clip in the video, I'm not going to tell you what he says. You're going to have to see it for yourself because it really shows what, what, what a real rock and roll guy he is. You know, I met him and he was a wrestler to me first. And then all of a sudden he was a singer. So the fact that the guy could have two lives, he's an amazing person. Seriously. Oh, no, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
to be able to to have a career in music, a career as a wrestler, and be an entrepreneur with all kinds of different businesses and stuff, and do up and here to be successful. Yes, the heavyweight champion of the world, and in my opinion, a total class act and a great actor as well. Yes, able to make people boo him and cheer him. Kudos and, to you, Chris Jericho. Seriously, and, and he's on Canadian TV. He's got a little thing called um, he's got a little thing on the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Network. Uh, called They Call Me Chris or something, something like that. And it's great. It's funny. So, no, he's absolute talent. And everybody on there, by the way, uh, great talent. Greg Bissonette, Carmen Apice, Mike Inez, uh, Phil Susan, Robin Ford. I mean, Mark Slaughter. The, the, the list is long and wide. D. Schneider. Uh, well done. Well done. Well done. Thank well you, done. Bro. Thank you. Thank you. And, I hope everybody uh, enjoys it. They shall. Uh, uh, thank you, Bob. Thank you, Mitch. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com.